Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy and Tino. Today is February 5th. And last week we talked about GameStop a little bit, but uh, meme stock mania continues in full force this week as well. So we're going to continue the conversation. So before we get started, would you like to explain what a meme stock is? Yeah, it's a good question and one that um, yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed to answer simply because I was, I've been saying they're men stocks for about two or three weeks now until uh, some of the younger uh, people on the team uh, informed me that I, I was uh, not saying it right. I feel like I'm uh, aging myself a little bit here when I say stuff like that. But uh, and a meme stock is a stock that uh, is attached to some type of a online discussion form, social media, it's a it's a it's a it's a story uh, a stock that uh, these chat rooms these reddit chat rooms are getting excited about and they are looking for opportunities to make money in them and they're they're being treated as gambling machines basically like a slot machine so you don't create memes is what you're telling me no but i, I will say um you know one of my new year's resolutions this year was to uh, effectively stop using twitter because uh, it was just taking up too much of my time and I wasn't getting much out of it. But, but I noticed your account was back up a couple of days ago. Uh, well, yeah, because of the chat room app that, yep. that I had to install. I had to have Twitter connected to it. So I brought it back up. And, you know, it wasn't a political statement or anything. It was just, frankly, I just don't find it to be all that useful. But I will say that one of the worst possible timings to get rid of Twitter was right around these meme stocks. Uh, simply because the the best thing about meme stocks are, are, are the memes. I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen some just stellar ones come my way over the past week or two, and uh, um, I just you know want to reach out and thank everybody that's been sending them to me because they are they are truly top tier. Yeah, although I feel like you you're you're more about the memes that are sort of anti meme stock than than an actual meme stock. That is true. I yeah. have to say that um, there's something inside of me that you know I don't necessarily want to uh, to be to see people lose too much money, but you know, uh, you gotta sometimes learn the hard way. And, and I say that from personal experience, you know, when I came out of college, it was 1999 and I started working in management consulting. I was working with a lot of these tech companies that were getting off the ground. And I was just so, it was so exciting to be in that time period that of course I put, you know, every dollar that I made into the stock market and had no idea what I was doing. And I lost 94% of it. So (laughs) you just sometimes got to learn the hard way. And then you get kind of get that out of your system. And then it's that you're able to kind of look at this from a more objective viewpoint. So we're talking about meme stocks for the second week in a row. And normally I would never want to cover the same topic twice, especially back to back. But, you know, as you pointed out earlier, uh, it's the same topic, but it's a drastically different story. Well, I mean, last week it was, man, these things are going to go to the moon. The shorts are getting squeezed. Hedge funds are you know, getting... Uh, getting their faces ripped off. And, and this week, it looks like a pretty sharp reversal of that story. I mean, look, I'm not going to say we predicted that, but we, it, it wasn't a hard prediction. You know, when stocks go up like this uh, and there's no fundamental component to the story, they're going to fall. They just are at some point. It's, it's, it's almost like gravity. So this week, we're starting to see this trade, I think, unwind to somewhat. Now, it's hard to say what's going to happen going forward, but this is so far following the pattern of your traditional short squeeze, no question. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm sure everybody's looking for the next one, right? 
Well, they tried with silver. Look, on Monday, they tried to move the silver market, which uh, I have to say is, one, objectively funny, uh, and then, two, uh, a lot harder to do than GameStop. I mean, silver is a, you know, silver does have a history of short squeezes and a history of extreme volatility. We saw it, I don't know, maybe about six or seven months ago. You know, the, the Hunt Brothers, if you Google Hunt, H-U-N-T, Hunt Brothers, uh, decades ago, tried to corner the silver market. There's always a story about silver once every decade or so. Uh, and they tried to move it, but it, they just they just couldn't. They just didn't have the firepower. And the silver moved a little bit at the beginning of the week, and it looks like it's tapered off somewhat. So uh, maybe there wasn't as much backing by you know, people online dipping chicken tenders in champagne glasses and toasting celebratory moves in, in GameStop the same way they are with silver these days. Yeah, plus, I mean, who wants to talk about silver anyways? Uh, it's like, what, are we living in the dark ages? Let's talk about something that's uh, you know relevant to this century at least. Yeah. Why silver though? I mean, of all the options that are available to people these days, why silver? You know, I, I don't really know why it's, I think it's one of those things where it's a feedback, feedback loop. It's volatile and it's, and it's at risk for short squeezes simply because there've been so many in the past. It's like that go-to that, that, that traders look and say, okay, things are weird. Let's go seeing what's going on in silver. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the precious metals, you know, to me, I always, I always call that, uh, silver and gold shiny pet rocks. I mean, they don't do anything. They just sit there. They don't generate income. They don't cre- create dividends. They don't have revenue. It, they don't compound their growth over time. They're just, they have value because people perceive them as having value. That's the only reason why the price goes up and down. So uh, in that respect, it's a lot like a Pokemon card. I mean, there's, there's really no difference or art hanging on your wall. It's, it's all just something that people say, hey, the price of that is... X. So where it gets different with the precious metals, though, is that silver actually has a utility in the world. I mean, it's used in uh, automotive parts. It's used uh, it's used in a lot of industrial components. Gold is it's nothing. It doesn't it's not used for anything really except for jewelry. And if you look at the demand profile for gold over, I think it's 90 or 94 percent of global demand for gold is in India and China. So if you back those two countries out, demand for gold drops dramatically. So th- that those types of mechanics create very, very volatile investments. And if you look at gold or silver, for that matter, the volatility of these uh, the, those precious metals uh, are uh, in, a, in almost any metric you look at higher than the S&P 500. And it has a fraction of the return over maybe a three or four decade time period. So last week we talked about Robinhood a little bit and sort of the controversy around um, them and, and other online brokers, or as I've seen on many YouTube channels, apps as they're being called, um, because I'm, I'm guessing nobody knows the difference between an online broker and just an app on their phone, it sounds like, um, at least when you're dealing with meme stock extraordinaires. Um, anyways, <laughs> we talked about them, them shutting down and sort of the controversy around that. It seems like they've um, gone out and raised uh, quite a bit of capital, uh, opened the doors back up. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, it's the irony, I think, of that of what you just said is interesting. You've got a, a broker who, look, I mean, uh, I, I used to work on the sell side. We used to love volatile equity markets because we made, them, we made money, right? Brokers make money on transactions. So you'd think a place like Robinhood would be killing it right now because of all the volatility. And you know, to have to go back to your investors this week and raise billions of dollars of additional capital uh, has caused a lot of people to kind of scratch their heads. And 
know, a lot of the reasons for that, I think we talked about last week, are, are regulatory. They're required to post more collateral with the clearinghouses. Uh, but uh, it, it's also started to shed light and some controversy. And, I, and I actually, I think the regulators are going to look at it, too, of how Robinhood actually makes money. I mean, think about it. You've got a broker who doesn't charge for buying and selling. There's no commission on the products that they sell. So a lot of people, and, and frankly, regulators are trying to, are asking the question, how, how do these companies keep the lights on? And if you, what, what this I think is stemming to is this idea of Robinhood's primary source of revenue is coming from payment or, for order flow. So basically what they do is if, if, if you go on your, your uh, Remy, if you go on your phone or your Robinhood app, I don't even know if you have it, but if you have it, you go on, and you decide to buy GameStop today, Robinhood most of the time is not going to send that order to the New York Stock Exchange for execution or, or some other exchange for execution. What they do is they'll take that order and send it over to Citadel Securities or Two Sigma or one of the other, uh, uh, Virtu, one of the other big market makers, and they'll actually execute that trade for Robinhood. And for doing that, they pay Robinhood a very hefty fee for access to their order flow. So you mentioned a few big name market makers. Why don't we talk about the service they provide and, and where they fit into this? Yeah, market maker is a, you know, think about it this way. Uh, it's a bookie. That's a basically what a market maker is. If, if, or eBay. eBay is a market maker, right? They've created a, a platform or a way for somebody to come on and buy and sell something. So they have created a market. They've made a market, so they call them a market maker. So market makers earn their money based on the commission of buying and selling goods. So eBay, for example, if I sell some rare baseball car or whatever on there, and they'll, they'll take their eight or 10% commission. When you buy and sell stocks, it kind of works the same way. If I'm a market maker and I am making a market, let's say in uh, Apple stock, right? So I'm, I'm willing to buy and sell Apple stock on the New York Stock Exchange or some other venue. Basically what I'm saying is I will take in orders for, for buys and sells, and I'll try to match them in my own book, and I'll try to earn some type of a spread between the buys and sells. Uh, now, this type of a business is like a bookie, right? If, if somebody comes to a bookie and says, I want to bet a you know a million dollars or a thousand dollars on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the Super Bowl on Sunday, a smart bookie will take that bet and they'll try to find an offsetting bet, right? They'll look for somebody who are they playing on Sunday? Kansas City? Kansas City, yeah. I I've got two daughters. I, I wear tutus on the weekend. I don't watch sports anymore. So, um, okay, so Kansas City. So they'll, they'll, he'll, that bookie will go out and try to find uh, somebody to take Kansas City at $1,000, and they'll just earn their spread on that trade, right? They're not going to be dumb enough to expose themselves to potentially being wrong one way or the other, or at least a successful bookie. That's how they make the money. Market makers do the exact same thing. If I have 100 orders for, to buy Apple, I'm going to try to offset that with 100 orders to sell Apple so I just don't have to take any exposure on owning that stock for too long. Uh, now, let's go back to our analogy. Let's say I'm a bookie and um, uh, what's the coach's name? Bill Belichick comes to me and says, I want to bet $10 million on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Sunday. I got to be thinking he might know something, right? He's pretty good at football. He's a coach and he might have some edge or informational advantage that might spook me. So for me to take that bet, I, as a market maker, I'm taking on a tremendous amount of risk unless I can find somebody to offset that, that bet. That's kind of, again, how the stock market works. If I'm a market maker in, let's say, GameStop, 
and which is a very thinly traded stock. And I've got some fancy hedge fund coming up and saying, hey, I want to short 10 million shares or $10 million worth of stock. I got to be thinking that there's a little bit of risk taking on this trade. So when I, if I'm a market maker, I, I can make a lot of money dealing with less sophisticated clients, what we call in this business retail clients, everyday mom and pop investors that aren't quite as sophisticated as hedge funds. So uh, Citadel and other companies that do business with Robinhood, they like Robinhood a lot because hedge funds aren't trading on Robinhood's iPhone app. All right. It's typically mom and pop investors, millennials, people like that. that don't really know what they're doing. They can actually make a market in that area without taking on a tremendous amount of risk. Let's sort of shift gears a little bit. Prior to, let's say, 25 years ago, you know, give or take a few years, the market was, I would say, sort of reserved for the wealthy. Right. You didn't have the average person that was investing in the market. Um, they didn't have the information. They didn't have quite frankly, the funds to do so, um, you know, they didn't have the education. With the invention of the internet, smartphones, um, the introduction of apps like Robinhood, who have essentially made free trading commonplace at this point, you've got everybody. It's opened the doors to, to, to every single person, whether you're you know, educated, you're uneducated, rich, poor, uh, black, white, man, woman, you name it. I can invest a dollar these days, I believe. I don't even know if there's a minimum on Robinhood, but I'm guessing it's not that much. Um, what do you think? Is, is, is this good or is this not good? Well, it's good and bad, right? It, it, I would say net out as a positive, but you're right. What you're saying is that it, you know, the advent of technology and, um, and allowing commissions to, to float uh, has democratized investing tremendously. Uh, I'll even throw in mutual funds and ETFs. You know, you said it. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, many years ago, unless you were able to, um, unless you had a lot of money and were able to access the market, it was very difficult to build a diversified portfolio. But then the advent of mutual funds and ETFs came along, and now you can invest a hundred bucks into five thousand different stocks and have a diversified portfolio that could grow over time and compound over time. And that is a very good thing. Uh, it does allow uh, a lot of different types of investors to access the market and create tremendous wealth. I met a woman one time who was, uh, she worked at Costco. Working with Costco as a, a checkout person, uh, right when Costco started to get big, big, I think in the late 80s or whenever it was. And she had 7 million bucks in her account. And I, I we asked, or 7 or $8 million, I asked her how she did it. And she just basically said, well, I bought this Vanguard mutual fund. And I figured markets go up over time. So, you know, I let it go up and I never sold. I mean, think about that. This is a person who's probably outperformed half of Wall Street. And, and she, it's the only business I can think of where a, an amateur, quote unquote, amateur could outperform a professional. Like if you're going to go get heart surgery, you're not going to go to somebody unless they've gone to like, I don't know, Harvard Med School, something yeah, like that. You got to so. be skilled, right? Where she just outperformed a lot of people because she just did something that made sense to her. So I think that's good. I think the challenge though, is because information is now available to anyone anywhere, it, that it's no longer being able to get it, it's sifting through all the garbage. And that's the real challenge right now is that there is so much just garbage out there and it is, it's designed to tap into the emotional core of readers. And it, it, it taps every bias, confirmation bias, recency bias, loss aversion, everything. It's designed to screw with your head. So that's really where the challenge is. 
And I think going forward, it's only going to get worse. So I had somebody that I'm friends with um, send me a text last week. This this person, to, to sort of set set the stage, this person is, um, I think, what, what you would consider your, your quote-unquote typical millennial. I don't know if I want to say anti-establishment, but... But um, you know what I'm getting at, you know, the, the type of person that was in uh, the, the Wall Street bets chat room and when there was a decision to stick it to Wall Street, probably jumped on that bandwagon for no other reason than to take down Wall Street. So you know, she had texted me last week and, and asked me my opinion about what's going on. And, you know, I gave it to her and it wasn't exactly what she was looking for. And, um, you know, she sent me a link to a YouTuber and she said, she, she said, you know, I don't know a ton about this stuff, but this guy has a ton of money and he's super smart. So I listened to him. So I, I listened to the video and you know, I wanted to vomit within two seconds of listening to the garbage that was being spewed um, because it was just wrong. You, you know, I, it doesn't really matter to me what side of the fence you're on and, or, or, you know, what your opinion is, as long as the information is correct, but the information was just blatantly incorrect. So how do you go about finding unbiased, accurate information at a time where that seems like it is impossible and, and not only impossible on the internet, but it has become impossible even through your, you know, your, your television news channels, which used to be sort of your source for unbiased news. They're no longer unbiased either. So, so where do you get this information? You know, how do you make a, a, an accurate, unbiased, informed decision? It's taken a very long time for me to just build my own resources. You know, I, I, I love that quote. I forgot who it was originally. Maybe Benjamin Disraeli said there are three types of lies in this world, lies, damn lies, and statistics. You know, even when you look at data that's pre presented from, let's say, government agencies that are, should be unbiased, how it gets distorted and printed oftentimes skews results. And it's interesting you talk about the media. I have not watched... CNBC, Fox Business News, Bloomberg, any of them, and over well over a decade at this point. You know, when I go on TV, um, I actually have to read up on who's going to be on the show, some of the anchors, because I don't know who they are. Um, I, I stopped watching it such a long time ago because it doesn't, it's not additive. It only causes problems. And I think that's a function of technology. You know, you think about the media sources, you're right. They used to report the news, now they report stories. And I think a, a big portion of that is because technology you can't compete with Twitter being able to spread out what's going on in some hot zone in the world in under four seconds, spread it out to a couple hundred million followers relative to a newscast trying to get that information out. It's just the speed and the latency is just so much more powerful with the technology. So they've, they're, they're backed in a corner. And the, the only way when you're backed in the corner is to make money is to lash out. And they've had to go to the extremes, both left and right to try to get people to watch. But in effect, it's kind of poisoned the messaging. I've spent years, I'm talking years, looking for a very short list of trusted resources that I use. Some of that is Wall Street research that is frankly very expensive, but we get access to it. Uh, and there are other sources online that, I've, uh, that are free that, that, that have been able to provide a lot of context as well. But it, I could count them on one hand. I, I actually don't do a lot of jumping around sources online. There's a couple places that I go. Uh, they've been pretty consistent and they are relatively unbiased. 
so I like to think we try to stay as unbiased as possible. Uh, I guess the listeners can make that decision on their own. But aside from us, can can you give one example, one one place that our listeners can go um, to get the the least biased information possible? I won't even say unbiased, but the least biased. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple that come to mind. I mean, if, if for for general news. Uh, I tend to read the Wall Street Journal. I'm not saying it's completely unbiased, not, not even close, but it tends to be uh, probably the most reliable of the resources out there. So I still, I still, I still read the journal every day. Uh, a couple blogs that I, that I follow very closely, one's called Calculated Risk. I think it's calculatedriskblog.com, all one word. Uh, that's a, um, that's a, it's a heavy on the economic side, but uh, some pretty good analysis. And I also uh, throw in there crossingwallstreet.com. Uh, that's from a, a gentleman, his name is Eddie Alphenbein. And he's, uh, he's a prof- prolific blogger, but he's a pretty, does a pretty good job of speaking uh, in layman's terms. You know, there's a lot of information out there that gets very technical very quickly, but I find what I'm most impressed with are the ones that can, um, that can tell a story in English. And, and actually, now that I say that, I'll even throw in Matt Levine. He's a uh, he's a columnist in Bloomberg, and he's got a free newsletter that shows up in my inbox around noon Eastern every day. I'd say that's probably one of maybe two or three pieces that I read every day without exception. Yeah, he is prolific too. He is writing constantly. I don't know how he does it. I mean, he he writes what I, what looks to me like anthologies. Like I write one of those a week. And it takes me a couple hours every week to put it together. He does that every day. And think about how much reading he has to do to, to actually get that out the door. It's, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's incredible. And speaking of your weekly, of course, you can always go to investwithdarwin.com to check out what uh, Mike's been writing each week as well. Please do, because it makes it worthwhile for me to spend all that time putting these together. So I asked for one, you gave me a bunch. And I guess the uh, hidden message there is that one really isn't enough. Yeah, you know, it's like the U.S. government, or maybe it was Ronald Reagan who said, trust but verify. And that's kind of how we handle our investment process here is that you know, we have trusted sources, but that doesn't mean I'm going to take their, uh, their word for it. Even when I do uh, follow my trusted resources, almost always I'll dig in just to make sure the numbers make sense and make sure that the conclusions are valid. Trust but verify. Trust but verify.